Hello, I'm Alex Rockkeen, a barrister at Third Man Essex Chambers. And what I want to do with you in this short presentation is walk through for non-lawyers how to read a court of protection judgment. Because I've noticed recently in a range of different settings, people finding it sometimes difficult to work out how to respond to a court of protection judgment, which seems to be in an area that they're concerned about and seems potentially to relate to a situation they're grappling with. So I want to use some slides to kind of help ground you here and orient you and help you think through how to proceed. So I'm going to share some slides and then we will take it from there. So that's me. So let's just start with what judges are doing. It might just be helpful what to see what judges are doing when they're reading other court of protection judgments. This is quite an old case now by court of protection standards. This was a hearing, a judgment back in 2014 from the Court of Appeal. And it was a difficult factual situation, which doesn't, the facts of which don't need to bother us. But it came up to the Court of Appeal. And what the Court of Appeal said is, look, cases which arise for decision under the Mental Capacity Act, part one is the bit we use the whole time, which get to court tend to be acutely difficult, not admitting of any obviously right answer. In some ways, that's why they're in court, because if it was an obviously right answer, we wouldn't necessarily need to be in court. The job of the court, the job of the judges, is to apply the statutory provisions, playing close heed to the language of the statute. That having been said, the judges said, well, sometimes what we need to do, is, what we can usually do, is look across and see how the courts have applied those statutory provisions to other factual scenarios. It's got nothing to do with the doctrine of precedent, which is where courts have to follow earlier decisions or complicated principles of statutory interpretation. It's simply that last red bit. The purpose is to see how other judicial decisions have exposed the issues or attempted to reconcile the irreconcilable. So these are fact-specific things that the courts are dealing with, applying the language of the Act to the facts of the case before them. And even the judges themselves, what they're doing is looking across and saying, well, how did another judge apply the Mental Capacity Act to a scenario? And how did their thinking proceed? We're not necessarily going to follow it directly because every single situation is different. So that's the judges. What about you? Well, let's even just take this in stages. When I started doing this slide, I thought, well, actually, let's just, just walk this through right from the beginning. What you're doing, and when I say you, I'm thinking of a professional thinking about the Mental Capacity Act in England and Wales. Firstly, does the Mental Capacity Act apply at all? And if so, how? Can I just use this opportunity to remind you always, don't stampede into thinking about using the Mental Capacity Act without thinking, why am I doing this? As I've mentioned elsewhere in other things, the Mental Capacity Act doesn't give you the power to do anything. Your power as a professional to do things comes from statutory things you might have. For instance, if you're a social worker, you might be applying provisions of the Care Act, or you might be applying other obligations, other statutory powers, other statutory obligations. What the Mental Capacity Act is effectively doing is telling you the basis on which you're engaging with the person you're working with. Are you engaging with them as somebody who's got capacity to accept or refuse whatever it is you're proposing? Or are you engaging with them on the basis that they don't have capacity and we're thinking about best interests? So never stop, never stampede straight away into thinking about, I'm now using a capacity, always think about why. And actually that rather nice typo at the top um, 
I shouldn't really, really shouldn't really have had a capital A, but I quite like Mental Capacity Act applies. So Mental Capacity Act, Mental Capacity applies capitally. You're then thinking about in almost all, almost very many situations involving health and social care, we're thinking about Section Five Mental Capacity Act. So in other words, that provision which says if we've taken reasonable steps to consider the person's decision to make the uh, capacity to make the decision, we've supported them, we've reached the conclusion that despite that support, they can't make that decision, we reasonably believe we're acting in their best interests, we're then able to proceed. Confident that we're not then legally liable, for instance, for touching them, because touching somebody, for instance, to change a dressing, would normally be an assault if they didn't consent it. Section five, Section 5 Mental Capacity Act provides the framework within which you can operate. And I just thought it was helpful to remind you there of that decision. Again, another Court of Appeal decision, really quite a long time ago. Again, it's all about reasonableness, practicability and appropriateness. Whenever the law says reasonableness, can I say, this is the law's code for what we need you to do as a professional is to explain why you're doing what you're doing. We're looking for that explanation. And if you give us a coherent explanation nine times out of 10, that will be enough. That will be reasonable. So you might be thinking about section five mental capacity. That's what we're thinking about most of the time. You might, of course, be engaging with an attorney or deputy if they've got the decision-making authority. You might be thinking about an advanced decision to refuse treatment, if that applies. You might be thinking about deprivation liberty safeguards. So thinking about the assessments, thinking about capacity, best interests, mental disorder. You might also be thinking about, do I need to go to court? Is this the sort of situation where I should be going to court because there's a dispute, for instance, about capacity and best interests we can't properly resolve? Or is this the sort of situation where there's no dispute, but what we're thinking about is so high end as an interference with the person's rights that actually it's just simply wrong to try and proceed on the basis of Section 5 Mental Capacity Act. All of these things you are thinking about using your professional judgment through the legal framework, using your professional judgment to think, how does the legal framework apply to the facts I'm confronted with? So with all of that, how would you be reading a judgment which looks like it relates to the sort of thing that you are considering? I've tried to summarise all of my thoughts here into one slide to really kind of bullet point it down. And I think the way I want to distill it down really is like this, is to ask yourself this question. Is the judgment, so the decision, telling you what the act means or requires? So give an example. We've got a very famous Supreme Court decision called Aintree and James. In Aintree and James, Lady Hale, giving the judgment of the Supreme Court, interpreted the meaning of best interests for purposes of the Mental Capacity Act. It's that very famous case where she says, essentially, we're trying to look at matters from the person's point of view. You can't always get what you want, but what we're trying to do in a best interest analysis is put yourself in the person's point, it, it, well, put yourself in the person's shoes, uh, as other judges have subsequently said. So that's telling us what the Act means. Other cases telling us what the Act means include all the, all, all the line of case law, including Cheshire West, telling us about what the concept of deprivation of liberty means. 
We've also got cases which tell us about what the Act requires. The Medical Capacity Act requires certain things in certain circumstances. So, for instance, we've got procedural requirements which are being amplified in relation to deprivation of liberty safeguards. We've got a really helpful series of judgments, including a case called RD, where the judges, Mr Justice Baker, as he then was, explained what the Act required when we were thinking about does a case involving deprivation of liberty safeguards have to go to court for Section 21A challenge. So those are where judges have told us what the Act means or the Act requires. Or is what the judge doing applying the words of the Act to the facts of a specific case? So they're not telling us what the Mental Capacity Act means or the Mental Capacity Act requires. Or it requires. What they're doing is a bit like the judges were talking about in this very first case, they're applying the statutory provisions, playing close heed to the language of the statute. And I think it's really important at that point to recognise and remember and realise, because the judge is doing that, that provides an indication of how you should be thinking things through, potentially. But it's not telling you, because the judge did this in this case, for instance, the conclusion about the person's capacity or the conclusion about the person's best interest or whether or not the person is deprived of liberty, I should be doing that on the facts of my case. At most, the judge is telling you that giving, illustrating how it is that they've thought it through, you need to be thinking it through, giving us a coherent, reasonable explanation as to how you have reached your conclusions. I think the key here, and this involves a slightly terrible, not quite pun, but a sort of use of, of two different spellings of the same word, don't get lured into abandoning your own judgment with an E, the exercise of your professional judgment by following a judgment, in other words, a legal judgment on the facts. I should perhaps fess up here and say, to some extent, we possibly in my chambers, the team I lead, the, the Court of Protection editorial team, may not have helped matters entirely because we set out loads of case summaries over the years. We've set out many, many case summaries over the years in our Court of Protection reports, originally newsletters. And I think sometimes people take those and think, actually, that means I need to be doing X because that's what the summary of the, the case is. They're not, that's not the case. That's not what we meant to do. And I should just make it super clear. We always try and make it clear when the case has said, this is what the act means, say, injury. But when otherwise they're illustrations of looking through, thinking about, as the judge said in that RB case, reconciling the irreconcilable. So can I just illustrate all of that with a case study? Because this is one of the cases which have really, in, in recently, and I, I'm, I'm saying this is in October 2022, this case was decided in the summer, and just seeing a lot of discussion about this afterwards, this is one of the things that really prompted me to record this. This is a really difficult case, must have been just dreadful for everybody, frankly. Uh, above all the women at the heart of it, but I, I'm not, uh, not in any way downplaying the dreadfulness of it for her family or the clinicians involved. It was a really difficult dilemma about continuing feeding under restraint for a 19-year-old with anorexia. Very young to have a situation where what ultimately was being put to the court was, we don't think this young lady, this lady has, woman has got capacity to make decisions about continued feeding, 
we don't think actually it is in her best interests to continue with feeding under restraint with force feeding. She'd had a thousand nasogastric feeds under restraint, many of them under restraint, must have been intensely distressing. We don't think this is the right thing to do. We don't think it would be right for her to be continued to be detained in hospital. She'd been detained in hospital under the mental health for, for, for several years by the time of this hearing. The judge endorsed this on the facts of the case and said it would be it's, it's exceptional for the court to make a decision which would chronologically, not causatively, lead potentially to the death of somebody in this situation. Um, she died. The postscript of the judgment makes clear she went home. She continued to refuse food. No one tried to force it upon her. She didn't live. Really tragic, really difficult. But the question I just really want to flag for you, because I just think it's really important you have flagged, what wider implications does it have? And I would just really want to emphasize in relation to this case, what this isn't is a case or where a judge is saying all situations involving this sort of scenario are ones where continued feeding is not in the best interest of the person say, sometimes called a move to palliative care. He's not endorsing that as a clinical approach. No one put it to, the, to him as this is the clinical approach that we recommend in these situations. So he wouldn't have been, he wasn't asked to endorse it. In fact, I'd be very surprised if he would have endorsed that as a general proposition. Nor was he saying anything else other than this is a really difficult scenario. It's being put to me on the facts of this case, on the basis of the evidence, including evidence about her wishes and feelings. I am satisfied that in this particular case, this outcome is not in her best interest. Well, the best in her best interests are not served by continually seeking to uh, restrain her, to feed her, continually seeking or continued to continued detention. That doesn't mean that feeding shouldn't still be offered. So on a very narrow answer to that question, what wider implications does it have? The answer is absolutely none. On a wider interpretation of that, that question, what I would say is, and very many medical treatment cases and indeed other cases, what they really show up is, why is it that the professionals involved are thinking this is the right course of action? Can I emphasize, I am not making any comments at all about whether the professional involved, professionals involved in this case were acting incorrectly. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is it flags up. If you read the judgment, you need to be thinking about, well, what was it leading them to reach that conclusion? What particular, you know, where was their ethical stance coming from? What might be leading into that? What was the factual situation they were dealing with? You're very welcome. And in fact, I would encourage you to think through things like this. And it's quite often very helpful. I, I know quite often both medical and social work practitioners sit down and, as it were, do discussions of cases and tease them out and think about them. And it's really useful as a learning point. But this decision wasn't telling anyone what they should be doing in relation to 19-year-old people with anorexia as a wider proposition. So I've moved from the very general to the very specific, but I hope in so doing I've illustrated something about how you can think about court protection judgments and how you can apply judgments in your practice. I hope this has been helpful.
here are various resources. As always, feel very free to drop me a line. I'm not on Twitter very much at the moment. In fact, I, I don't I don't publish on Twitter, do anything other than publish on Twitter, but feel very free to drop me a line. If I can answer questions, I can't give you facts, uh, advice on the facts of any individual case, but I'm always happy to try and answer questions if I can. Thanks very much indeed for watching.